Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So apologies for the hiatus in these episodes. Combination of moving home, work commitments, and just generally settling into a new place has set back my planned schedule for these episodes. But as we move in towards Christmas and the new year, I hope to regain my regularity and release an episode every two, three weeks. And speaking of future episodes, there's several already lined up, including a discussion with Bjorn Hoffman and Derek Griffin. Bjorn's been on the podcast three times, talking about de-diagnosing, over-diagnosis, and the ethics of disease. Derek is a physiotherapist based in Ireland, and has a particular interest in pain management, but also a growing interest in over-diagnosis. So together, as a three, we'll discuss the moral expansion of disease and also reiterate overdiagnosis in the context of MSK practice. There's also an episode with Kevin Wernley, who's a physiotherapist based in Australia, who's been part of the Peter Sullivan CFT group. And we plan on talking about having hard conversations with patients and colleagues around low back pain and the associated beliefs and attitudes. I'm also going to speak again with Creamy Mosquito, who I spoke to back in episode 39. Creamy has now completed her PhD, so I can't wait to speak with her to discuss in full her work and how we might move beyond the BPS model in a critical direction. Many of you may be aware of a recent paper that was released, which I was proud to co-author. The title of the paper was Avoiding Nocebo, and other undesirable effects in chiropractic, osteopathy and physiotherapy, an invitation to reflect. And that's currently in press over on the Journal of MSK Science and Practice. And I'm delighted to be part of a pan-professional, multinational authorship, led by David Hohenhurst-Schmidt, who I spoke to in podcast two, would you believe, about remote MSK practice. Also, Giacomo Rossettini, who I spoke to back in episode 14 about nocebo and boosting placebo and the contextual effects. And also Maxi Mikciak, who I spoke to in episode 9 around the therapeutic relationship. Dave Newell's new authorship, who I spoke to in episode 15 and more recently with Jack Chu on episode 72 about truth and plausibility. Lisa Roberts and Lena Vass also co-authored this paper, and finally Jerry J. Barodi, who I spoke to back in episode 6, about breaking free and diving in and becoming biopsychosocial. And we plan to do a podcast episode where we address some of the main messages in the paper, but also respond to any comments and questions from readers. We really want to transfer this evidence into practice and encourage clinicians to critically reflect on the language and behaviour that they adopt in their clinical work. So we welcome questions, 
sent to us directly to the lead author, David, or you can find the paper and the link to a space where you can post your questions in the show notes. So this comeback episode is actually an AMA, and many thanks to all of you who have submitted your questions. I've done my best to ensure, as usual, a wide range of topics, recognising my narrow limit in expertise and conversation, but also conscious not to necessarily repeat topics that I've discussed on previous episodes. And so the first question is, how can you teach the BPS model and associated clinical reasoning in an academic setting? Uh, So there are challenges here. One is that the traditional nature of MSK learning is centred around biomedicalism. And I I know that the biopsychosocial model and associated theories are now embedded in education across MSK, but it can still be a challenge to introduce non-biomedical ways of thinking. You know, that the draw of biomedicalism and biomechanicalism is a strong one. And so I think using a range of different strategies pedagogic strategies to facilitate the uptake and the consideration of biopsychosocially orientated theories into students' thinking and practice. So for me personally, I like to use a combination of case examples or case studies, whereas a class or small group work, we can critically discuss presenting cases, think about some of the cues which might be drawing our gaze or attention, some of the pieces of information within that case, and then also critically wondering why is it that we're drawn to those particular cues. But using case examples, using vignettes to encourage students and clinicians to reflect on their clinical reasoning, their practice, having having open discussions about some of that reflection, explicating some of those biases and assumptions and kind of a priori presuppositions about what that information means, what that patient's about. Exploring other ways of practicing, exploring other ways of approaching patient cases, thinking about the language might use to describe the the patient case, thinking about the patient as a person, and their life world, their social narrative and story which comes with them, talking about how we might approach that clinically through conversation, and also talking about to what end might we explore these, you know, why might these be useful areas to, to begin to understand and potentially begin to have discussions around with patients in order to facilitate some kind of change in them. So I think as much as possible, like any good clinical education, is to situate the theory in practical examples. And of course, when there's opportunities to work clinically with students, either in supervised clinic or more of a mentored capacity, then in that real-world interaction with patients, when you have a moment to speak with the students aside or outside of that session, is to critically discuss the thoughts, the feelings, the beliefs, the assumptions which the student or clinician took to that 
interaction and just being able to explicate some of these tacit ways of thinking and and some of these tacit assumptions we can begin to act on them and, and recognize how they may be influencing the situation role playing can be a really helpful way where you've got students that partner up and one plays a patient one plays a clinician and we go through a clinical case history taking a clinical interaction with a watching audience if you like and there's moments to reflectively pause and ask some questions about what were you doing and what were you thinking then and as a patient perhaps or as a modeled patient perhaps draw out some of their interpretations and their experiences and with that some modeling too so so when there's an opportunity for students or clinician to observe so that peer observation where you're able to go through your clinical approach and model the sorts of behavior and discourses that you hope to facilitate in in others that can be really helpful and then having again moments to critically discuss how that was what went well what didn't go so well that can be really helpful for students to see some of those attitudes and positions in action as it were and they can reflect on perhaps how they take on some of those ideas and those approaches themselves next question what would you say to a current student of osteopathy who wants to do a bachelor in psychology after osteo just to get more psychology and communication tools as well as broadening knowledge on different psychological theories which can help to understand the person in pain. Um, it's great that you want to move into or expand your knowledge of psychology. I think that embarking on a, on a full degree in psychology is is may well be overkill. I mean, it, it, in so much as, um, you know, and I'm thinking of a paper by Mary O'Keefe, and I think it was in JOSPT where, she makes a really good case for psychologically informed practice in that it doesn't necessarily commit you to moving into the scope of psychiatry or psychology that many of the psychological aspects to MSK practice aren't clear psychopathologies or clear phobias or necessarily require deep psychological or Freudian analysis that they can be addressed meaningfully through attending to conversation, through relational ways of being, and just having confidence to to explore some of these non-physical aspects to a person in pain. So clearly, knowledge of some psychological theories, whether it's fear avoidance, whether it's behaviour change, whether it's catastrophizing or pain beliefs this can be useful knowledge and frameworks to begin to structure conversation but many of the issues that we see within MSK care can be meaningfully addressed through just adopting a different stance and yes of course there are some skills around case history taking conversation motivational interviewing that can be developed but whether or not three or four years of psychology will make you more effective at addressing some of these 
issues compared to just a paradigmal shift in your practice and focusing your learning and CPD on different aspects? It's hard to say. So I guess my advice there would be to yeah, think about what you, know, what you really want to get out of your psychology degree. And if it is just some extra tools, as you say, to develop your confidence and skills in managing and understanding people in pain, to think about critically whether or not three, four years spent learning deeply the theories around these and other topics in psychology are necessary and whether you can spend and whether there's time better spent looking at other aspects of practice whilst at the same time picking up these skills and and ways of thinking in more efficient methods. Next question. I'm curious about how you organise your evaluation and treatment within and between sessions. Um, that's interesting. I was I was thinking or speaking to some postgraduate students about this and especially the evaluation aspect of my practice. And if I were to look at my my clinical assessment with a patient, for example, with low back pain, the, my, my selection of examination or evaluation methods or techniques is based on a number of different factors. So clearly there's some information which I feel would be helpful to me to make some judgment about the nature of the person's pain. I'm able to get some sense of sensitivity around the body, confidence to move. There's there's conversations to be had with patients during or after that movement or that task about their experience, some of the cognitions and beliefs which were underpinning those experiences. So that can be all really helpful from a psychologically informed practice point of view. There's also things that I do in my evaluation or in my assessment which seem to be driven by patient expectations and a kind of charade about wanting to give the impression that I'm thoroughly examining the patient in a way which is expected and meaningful for them. So that that point in your evaluation when you your patient is maybe facing away from you and you're looking at their body or their back and this is a a process at least in osteopathy and imagine most of the MSK fields where there's a there's an assumption that just by staring at someone's the back of someone's body you get an idea or, or that delivers to you some cues around what might be wrong with them and what might be causing their pain or discomfort or their presenting complaint. And it may just be because of my time in practice, but I'm constantly feel like I'm just staring into thin air here that I'm not quite clear apart from looking at kind of gross morphological changes in structure and importantly, maybe some cutaneous changes, which are rare, I'm often performing some of these examination, observational aspects of the examination, partly to give the impression that I'm being thorough and I'm meeting some of those expectations. I mean, if a patient comes to you with back pain, there's a understandable expectation that you're going to look at their back 
And you often hear reports from patients who have seen other clinicians, maybe medical practitioners, who don't even examine the area and form a diagnosis based on conversation. And whilst I can totally understand that, and I'm not making a case for observation of people's spines as being really helpful to establishing causation and the nature of someone's pain, I also recognise that there's a, a duty to show there's a duty to show concern and attention to the area that the patient is finding problematic. So I, I kind of see it as a as a as a way to to begin to cement some kind of trust that I'm thoroughly looking at their body and their problem and I'm deeply concerned about trying to get to the bottom of it together. So if I've got to spend a couple of minutes looking at someone's back or body, then that's that's no problem for me. Um, and it also provides me an opportunity to to reassure them you know, if if that was something they were concerned about, that they had bad posture or were crooked or asymmetrical or one hip was up and down and rotated. I can I can show that I'm attending to that concern and looking to alleviate that that worry through examination and conversation. So some of my evaluation is based on patient expectations, their preferences, what their concerns are, um, and clearly some of it is information to help us understand better the nature of the person's pain, any problems or challenges with movement or getting a sense of which areas are sore, sensitive, information about loading perhaps too. So on that initial consultation, that's a particular focus of mine is to really try and understand, is to really try and understand what the person is concerned about. And I'll try and feed that into my examination. In terms of evaluating within sessions, it's not something I routinely do. I, I, I recognise that it's common practice that you will perform some treatment or rather you will observe, analyse someone's movement, perform some manual therapy, and then observe again at the end of the session to look at the effects of your treatment. I guess I recognise that the that those non-specific effects of manual therapy are just that, that they are contextual and non-specific, and actually it provides very little value to me. Or if anything, my concern is that by by reinforcing the kind of structural or rather reinforcing the kind of biomechanical changes or perceived biomechanical changes following manual therapy just reinforces a sense of structuralism in the patient that I've done something to their back through manual therapy and now their back is functioning or their body is functioning differently. So, so no, it's not something I routinely do within sessions. Between sessions, it's a bit more deliberate. So I'll go through a similar process to see levels of confidence, obviously levels of function, levels of sensitivity to explore people's between sessions experiences around movement. That can be really helpful. So again, it gives me a sense of the direction that the the sessions are going in. And needless to say that that evaluation occurs throughout the session. So this false demarcation of assessment and treatment and not that I do much in the way of treatment, manual therapy treatment, but whether it's movement-based activity or, or some manual-based therapy, 
that is all information for the bo- for the both of us. Um, so there's conversations I said to be had and questions to be asked around some of these experiences with patients, which again deliver or generates more information, which allows us to better understand what's going on. Next question: What do you wish you knew when you started? What's your best advice to students? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, what do I know? I mean, personally, for me, I think if I had known some of the implausibility within my chosen profession of osteopathy, some of the outlandish claims and theories, and and that these would be, in many cases, seen by some as being sacred cows and foundational and fundamental to osteopathy. I think if I'd known some of that extremism within my profession, and I, you know, it's not, it's not certainly not majority, but it's a, it's a noisy part of the profession. That would have been helpful for me to inform my decision about my own career. I think there are some issues around economics and that the traditional model of practice, again, at least within osteopathy, is people require a series of treatments and there's a necessitation for them to return in order to really get to the bottom of what's going on, to fine-tune the engine, to work a little bit more on that knee mobility or that hip mobility through manual means, despite someone's levels of pain and disability improving to a took in a meaningful way for them and I think you know when you look at practice like that then you can do some maths and say well x number of patients a week averaging you know seven eight sessions over their course of care I guess what's challenging is that once you do adopt a much more collaborative relational way of practicing which doesn't center on the need for care or the need for a particular type of care i.e hands-on manual therapy, then clearly that calculation is different. That patients, you're, or rather you're actively promoting patients not to be reliant on you and that they're resilient and robust and can autonomously make decisions about their own care and bodies. I think when you start to approach practice from that point of view, then you've got to rethink your model of practice and your the kind of economics and people... I guess being prepared as a student that actually if this is the way that you're going to work then it will just take longer to be able to pay your rent for example in your clinical space or or develop your business that way so I think that you know the, the kind of business the the way of surviving as a self-employed clinician who isn't just churning out manual therapy you know 15 16 patients a day in 20 minute appointments for prolonged periods of time, but actually how to build a a business, a viable business, which is ethical and doesn't rely on a single intervention. That, I wish I knew more about that when I, when I started. So I guess my advice is to, if it is the case that you want to develop your practice in that way, i.e. to be more relational, psychologically informed, then giving some time to think about 
and I suppose to seek advice from those that have done it about how to how to move forward in a kind of commercial sense with that. I think another piece of advice I would have for students of, I guess in my case, osteopathy is is just to not feel bound to to be wedded in tradition and to practice like an osteopath. I mean, clearly you've got to meet your practice standards set out by the regulator around ethics and knowledge and skills and practice. But beyond that, you know, this idea of, well, I may not practice, am I practicing like an osteopath? I think just gives too much credit to the importance of preserving a particular identity. I really think the question should be phrased as, am I caring for the person in the best way possible? And when we frame it like that, then really it behoves us to draw upon every stance and every intervention, every technique and every method and every theory which we feel best serves the patient whether or not they're osteopathic or chiropractic or physiotherapeutic or psychological. So I guess, again, the advice to students would be completely agnostic as to what ideas and theories you utilise to to care for the people who are suffering and, and seeking your help. Next question, what's the best and worst paper you've ever seen? Goodness. Um, that's a really hard one. I don't think I have a best paper. I certainly have some very memorable papers, which I still go back to. So a paper that is just brilliant is a paper by James Markham, which was published in the journal Medicine, Healthcare and Philosophy. And the title of the paper was Biomechanical and Phenomenological Models of the Body, the Meaning of Illness and Quality of Care. And that was way back in 2005. And that was just a incredible paper for me to open my eyes to different ways that the body can be conceptualized and, and understood. And more importantly, the particular way that the body and illness had been imbibed in my education in a very biomedical, biomechanical fashion. So that has got to be a, a must read for any healthcare practitioner, particularly those in the kind of body focused or MSK focused space. And then tied to that is a paper by Dave Nichols, a related paper titled The Body and Physiotherapy in the journal Physiotherapy Theory and Practice back in 2010. And Dave, who's been on the podcast a couple of times now, cites Markham's paper and really begins to apply Markham's paper to physiotherapy, but offers a more social historical critique of the role that the body plays in physiotherapy. So two incredible papers, really must-reads for any budding or established MSK practitioner. And my worst paper, it's hard to pick out a worse, and it's probably not fair. I would probably say some of mine, my early work was not perhaps as as uh, rigorous and, and as high quality as I hope to produce now. Um, I guess bad qualitative research is is kind of annoying. So, so 
qualitative research which is devoid of any real richness or theoretical positioning which look to really just provide evidence for existing thinking and using qualitative research to really justify existing positions, whether it's claims about effectiveness or the value of certain practices such as palpation. It's a good one. And just fails to provide any novel insight or rich perspective on a particular social phenomena or process or any extent practices and just doesn't seem to situate or integrate the the study in kind of extant sociological or philosophical theories and literature. So just weak, vacuous, superficially descriptive qualitative research directed to irrelevant and meaningless aspects of, of practice. So the kind of qualitative research that Dave Nichols and I spoke about on the qualitative research series AMA back in episode 51. So take a listen to that episode to get a sense of the sorts of qualitative research which should and shouldn't be generated. Next question. What are your thoughts on reassurance? There was a discussion that blew up on Twitter. Uh, I did see that discussion on Twitter with Evie Martin and you know I I guess my I've got some thoughts around the argument that Evie put forward which was that Evie uh, kind of rightfully questioned common practices in in MSK practice and in this case it was reassurance and you can go to Twitter to see Evie's full thread in which she questioned the value of reassurance and that we don't know what patients need to be reassured about and that it's likely not the thing that we think it is. And and I guess I've got to condemn some of the, the responses that Evie got, which were completely unfair and unnecessary and inappropriate. You know, problematizing assumed practices and knowledge and digging down into the underlying premises and appreciate those potential consequences of those positions is really what critical practice is all about. You know, I've been at the centre of my own gate where I raised, questioned and exposed incredulity within corners of osteopathy. For goodness sake, I did a podcast asking why we should help people who are ill. So, And so for Evie to question common assumptions and behaviours in practice was quite right. I suppose my own thoughts are that clearly reassurance is a complex intervention that to do reassurance is quite different to doing blood pressure for example or giving a list of exercises that it's situated within a relationship requires acting and being a certain way with patients requires an endeavor on the part of the clinician to to be interested in what the person is concerned about. And Evie's right, it may not be, or perhaps it's likely not to be whether or not their back pain or their complaint is cancer. But we really don't know until we ask patients what their concerns are. And if it isn't cancer, then reassuring them about cancer is clearly 
not person-centred. If it isn't that their spine is damaged, then again, spending time reassuring them about something which they're not concerned about isn't time well spent. But clearly there's good and bad reassurance. There's reassurance which serves a purpose, which addresses the concerns which have been identified through conversations with the patient, and which, together you agree, may be negatively impacting the person's well-being, recovery, pain experience, etc. And so reassurance directed to those aspects of the person's problem is time well spent. And together think about strategies which can be employed to effectively address some of those concerns in a compassionate way. So not crying with the patient or overly empathising with them, but thinking about some of the ways in which these concerns can be addressed and trying to empower them or facilitate some sense of empowerment with them about how to move forward and address these. And yeah, clearly it can be done badly by just saying, everything's fine, it's okay, don't worry, it's not cancer. These are likely to land as invalidating and uncaring from the perspective of the patient. And I think just to add that reassurance is more than just saying reassuring things or informing patients of the unlikelihood that their problem or pain is due to anything which they should feel existentially threatened by. It's also the context and environment which you create within that clinical space. And I remember speaking to Dave Nolan way back about pain beliefs and lifting beliefs, and that when patients can feel the fear in the room, where the clinician also provides feelings or senses of threat and danger. So it's also an atmosphere that one can create through language, non-verbal behaviour, movement, touch, guidance, support. So reassurance is more than just a single set of sentences that can be directed towards a patient, but rather a far more complex and integrated approach and intervention. Next question, do you crack people's necks? Um, I rarely, rarely manipulate or thrust cervical spines now, partly because I think that it's mainly unnecessary, is largely as effective or less effective than more active interventions, carries a small risk of harm, and in some cases significant harm, potentially reinforces attitudes and beliefs amongst patients around their neck and their spine, which I perceive to be unhelpful. If I'm pushed, if it's a, you know, I'm not going to have a fight with the patient about whether or not they, whether or not I manipulate their necks, if it's going to compromise our relationship, then I'll negotiate with them. And, and if it's safe and medically safe, then it's something that I'll consider and discuss with them. Clearly, I'm interested in why they want their neck manipulated. What are some of those underlying beliefs and perceptions which are driving that 
desire to have their neck cracked or manipulated. But more and more now, I do less and less of it. Um, I move the conversation away, if I can, around that. But equally, if they're if they're deeply attached to that intervention and it's within my skill set to provide it, I'm you know, I've got to reflect on whether or not it's worth compromising a relationship going forward by just refusing to, to give it to them, if you like, for want of a better expression. And if I do do it, I I situate the intervention in as a benign, biomechanically benign and reassuring way as possible, that I'll frame it as something around settling symptoms or 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 making the area less sensitive, making someone feel a bit more confident to move. But but it's something I do less and less as I go through my practice. Final question. How do you balance views as a constructionist slash relativist with implausible claims? Um, that's a good question. I think, you know, my social constructionism is moderate, so I'm not a radical or an extreme constructionist in so much as where there are phenomena or things which whose function and significance very much depend on how we collectively or individually as a in the terms of social constructivism think about them or making claims about objective truths in the scientific biomedical world seem to be more plausible than making claims about objective truths in the social world and i spoke about this in this in a previous episode around pericardial gait that the structure and function of the heart and the associated possibilities of or rather impossibilities of assessing the fascia and structures and and winding the structures around the heart would seem to me to be an objective scientific fact that this is not possible despite any social construct or cognitive construct in someone's mind that it might well be possible and that they're experiencing it whereas social phenomena like the meaning of care or the purpose of a profession, that's up for social grabs, that these aren't objects in the same way as a heart, a rock or a tree, and that their meaning is both time and context dependent and can change. So that's really how I settle that tension between a position which appreciates objective biomedical facts but can also appreciate the multiplicity of subjective truths within the social world. I think I'll try and explore this more in a future podcast. Not quite sure who to, to speak to. Can maybe ask if Martin Cush wants to talk about this with me, who I spoke with him about relativism a few episodes ago. So that's it. Many thanks for your questions. and. Don't forget you can support the podcast via Patreon and pledge a pound or a couple of dollars per episode. And that really helps me keep these episodes as frequent and as rich as possible. So many thanks to everyone who's been supporting it so far. Please share and subscribe to the podcast and I'll see you next time. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs and check out the online course in language and communication in relation